You are listening to a podcast by the Trinity Long Room Hub Arts and Humanities Research Institute. For that introduction, thank you to Daniel and, and to Tom for the invite to, to come in and speak tonight. I met Tom last Saturday morning and he reminded me 12 minutes or 12 minutes. Um, so what I have done to, to try to keep to that time is, to, is, is commit what I have to paper to, to make sure I don't go off on, on the tangents that I will do. But uh, you can give me a nod if I, if I, if I digress too far. Um, so, um, by many measures, Ireland is a highly globalised country. The, the Vice Provost of Trinity himself, Chris Marash, uh, spoke on that topic here quite recently um, when he highlighted that Ireland was consistently one of the most globalised countries in the world since the turn of the century. The latest globalisation index for 20, 2018, which refers to an Ireland of 2016, now positions Ireland as 15th, so we're slipping down that ranking. But in terms of uh, economic globalisation, we're still positioned as sixth. And in terms of social globalisation, we're still positioned as ninth, or 67th, for political globalisation. Um, I often start off with this kind of exploration with my students when I'm working around issues of language diversity, uh, immigration into Ireland, and ethnic diversity, because it provides a really important context to, you know, through which we can examine contemporary Ireland. When looking at tonight's topic around Dublin's languages and, and, and the growing linguistic diversity of the city, this is particularly apt. We know that Ireland has become home to uh, immigrants from over 200 uh, countries in the last 20-25 years, and we are now beginning to witness the second generation of that migration, uh, in, and particularly in certain pockets in the city and outside of the city. Migration and linguistic diversity very often goes hand in hand, and this is strongly the case in present-day Dublin. Um, speaking two languages, and I think we don't hear this and, and think about this often enough, speaking two or more languages is actually normal in the world. Okay, and I think just normalising that notion of multilingualism is particularly important. Jim Cummins would talk about close on maybe two-thirds of the world's children grow up in bilingual or multilingual environments. Closer to home, uh, the Euro uh, barometer, which looked at Europeans and their languages in 2012, told us that 54% of residents within the, European, within the European Union were able to hold a conversation in one additional language other than their mother tongue. If we go down a little bit further, with 25% who were able to hold that conversation in two languages plus their mother tongue, and that drops, but still a high enough percentage of 10% will be conversant in at least three plus mother tongue. Okay. Interestingly as well, I think 84% of the population agree that everyone in the European Union should be able to speak at least one foreign language in addition to their mother tongue. Percentage for Ireland? No, oh, okay, who's that? <laughs> 40. Okay. So in 2012, 40% was somewhere, I think the, the sample was about 1,060, were able to hold a conversation in one additional language other than their mother tongue um, um, in Ireland. If we come a little bit closer then and, and, and look at what data we have available to us in the context of Ireland, um, nationally, the 2016 census provide us with data that somewhere in the region of 13, 12.85% of residents were able to speak a language other than Irish or English at home. Now, I suppose if we look at the increase, the percentage increase since 2011 when that question was first asked on the census, we see that there's, a rate, that there's, there's an increase of 19% from 2011 to 2016 on that. And the most common languages that are spoken at homes in Ireland outside of Irish and English are Polish, Lithuanian, Romanian, and Portuguese. Now, that I suppose paints a national picture. What I think is important in the context of the, 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 the lecture tonight, or, or the address tonight, when we look at Dublin City, we see an overall population of, so within the city boundaries, the census tells us 554,554 people in 2016. So it's a nice ring to that. Of those, 96,000 people indicated that they speak a language other than Irish or English at home. 
That's about 17.4% of the population that was uh, of usual residents in uh, on, on the night of, of, of census. Okay, so 17.4% speak a language other than Irish or English at home. If we uh, kind of examine that a little bit deeper, we, we, we'll spread out from Dublin City out, out across Dublin County. Dublin City comes in at 17.4%, Fingal come in at 22.5%, South Dublin at 17.3%, and Dunleary Rathdown at 14.1%. You can question why, why those uh, differences exist, but overall we're sitting somewhere in a population of Dublin County of close on 18% of people who speak a language other than Irish or English at home. That's almost one in every five people. So it's no, uh, it's no surprise when we're alerted to the fact that when we sit on the bus or when we sit on the Lewis or the Dart, we are, we are, we are living in a multilingual environment and we see that and we hear that. Okay. The unequal distributions uh, that I've noted within, the, uh, within Dublin County, uh, if, if, if we look at those more deeply into the electoral divisions within each of the, uh, the, 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 the four of these, for example, Aaron Key, it again gives us a very kind of um, unequal distribution of, of, language, of, of language speakers in certain areas within the city. So in Aaron Key C, which is an electoral division within Dublin City, 37% of people resident uh, were speaking a language other than Irish or English uh, on the night of the, of the census. If you look at Fingal, which you know, works off a 22.5% general, uh, Blanchardstown Mulhuddard electoral division, 46%, so almost half of people living in that electoral division spoke a language other than English or Irish uh, as, as a language at home. Now, we can't be absolutely clear about how often these languages are being spoken, because that question isn't asked on the census, but I think we can establish, you know, we can be fairly confident that it's, uh, that it's a fairly regular occurrence. The language, the question on the Irish language in the census does ask about how often the language is spoken. And, you know, the, the, there are more statistics available than what I'm going to show here, but 29.2% um, of the population of Dublin City identify as Irish speakers, but if we hold for the non-stated population, that rises to close on 40% who identify as Irish speakers. If we dig into those data a little bit, though, what we begin to see is a, a population of 7.4% of the population of the city that speak Irish daily within the education system only, and only 3.3% of the population of the city speak Irish at least once a week outside of the education system. Uh, that drops down then to 7.8% of Irish speakers who never speak Irish outside of the education system. So I suppose what I'm painting here is a picture somewhat of a multilingual city. Now multilingualism is at the same time it's, a, it's an individual as well as a social phenomenon and it's something that kind of transgresses or, or is encountered across all sections within society, social classes, ages and across countries. We know uh, and, and research is, is quite strong on this in terms of the, the list of benefits for the individual speaker in terms of multilingual uh, um, uh, awareness, uh, metalinguistic awareness, uh, and ability to, to, to notice um, uh, grammatical errors, etc. Um, but in addition to that, when we think about some of the other benefits, some interesting work coming out of London uh, quite recently, looking at young, young multilingual teenagers and, and, and be more empathetic and be more open-minded than some of their monolingual peers. So, as an ever-increasing feature of the fabric of society, we hear, it on a, we hear it and read it on our streets, we hear it in our religious services, we hear it in our health services, we hear it in our shops, our public transport, our restaurants and our bars, we hear it in our educational institutions. Uh, the Dean of Research here in Trinity, Linda Doyle, has, has recently tweeted that there are now 80, uh, uh, people from 83 different nationalities uh, enrolled on postgraduate courses in the university. So Trinity itself is contributing to this and education and third level education is contributing to this by actively recruiting from abroad. Okay? Adding to that rich linguistic repertoire of the city. My own, uh, my own research work examines facets of multilingualism in our schools and our school communities 
And I suppose I want to emphasize again here the, that multilingualism within so many Irish schools, in addition to the bilingualism of Irish and English, but multilingualism within so many of Irish schools is normal. Schools, many schools that have been built since the early 2000s have not known any other reality other than a multilingual reality. Many schools, particularly in Dublin City, have over the last 20 years been serving a population that is very multilingual and have not known any other reality than that. So it is very normal for our schools to be working in that environment. Um, just by way of illustration, one of my postgraduate students is a, is a teacher in a school not, not two kilometres away from here and this year of less than 250 students we have speakers of 39 different languages enrolled in that school. Um, even closer than that school, the City of Dublin Education Training Board and their Migrant Access Programme which works with young uh, migrants into the city between 13 and 18, refugees, unaccompanied minors, etc. Um, I'm currently doing an evaluation of a project in there and, and, and when you go in and work with some of the teachers and listen to some of the languages, you see almost changing the, the linguistic structures of the city as you see Eritrean people coming in, then Somali people, then uh, Afghan people, and then uh, uh, Syrian people. And, and, and listening and observing and hearing those languages, you, you are living the, the, the shifting linguistic uh, reality of the city. Um, and what they're bringing with them is not just their languages, but also their linguistic practices. So in terms of their internet usage, their online, their, their, their phone tests, their, uh, text messages, etc., you've seen a very different type of linguistic practices that is embedded in multilingual reality. There are challenges with this reality, but there's also great learning opportunities. The primary school I mentioned um, uh, earlier, um, the, 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 the resources that children are providing, both for, the, uh, for all the children in the school, but also for the teachers in terms of understanding how languages work, and the teachers will reflect on that, they become very strong language teachers by virtue of working with populations who demand that and who are living uh, um, through a number of different languages. That school as well is really well supported by outside agencies. And just by way of example, you have an embassy working in that school providing first language tuition for children after school. You have an NGO that's providing help around uh, translation and interpretation services for family and community members. Okay? You have the children themselves engaged in a, a really exciting project, a, a young uh, translators project, where older and more proficient speakers of a language are working with younger uh, or linguistically aligned pupils newer to the school to help them and to integrate through their languages. Not seeing language as a problem, but seeing it as a resource. There's a real vibrancy when you get in around that school and you just hear uh, and, and, and you sit and, and listen and watch. The issue of translation and interpretation, which I've mentioned there that an NGO is providing, is um, in the early 2000s, we noticed uh, in, in a lot of schools, in, particularly in the inner city and, and, and the school that I was working in, it was very difficult to access properly trained interpreters and to have them available to come in and work with parents, members of the community, children and staff within schools. Um, a pilot project in the North Inner City, which was evaluated in 2008, uh, the, the school's culture mediation project, uh, no, that, uh, which worked to provide translation and interpretation services for schools in the, in, in, in the North Inner City, was a really transformative piece. And I just want to read a, a quotation from a principal who was part of the project. So 10 schools in the North Inner City who had access to translation and interpretation services through the, the SCMP. So this principal is talking about the importance of parental involvement and, and, and offers us the following. The experience of a parent crying at a parent-teacher meeting where they were assisted by an interpreter. They were crying with this sense of relief that for the first time the parent could ask questions and discuss her child's progress with the teacher. That is a clear indication of that parent's sense of involvement in the school that was facilitated by the culture mediation project. So we know that linguistic diversity can be a challenge both for society and the institutions within that society. From my point of view, it's for the speakers of those languages as well that it can be a challenge. When a society or a city does not fully grasp the importance of providing the services, to those speakers and to those institutions, 
when we slip into a language as problem understanding or perspective, when we set up language power dynamics that ask young children to defend the linguistic practices of their parents, or worse, that actually put them at odds with the linguistic practices of their parents, where we encourage them to move away from the language practices of their parents, then we are really doing a disservice to, uh, well, to, 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 to the reams of, of research that, that encourages us to, to do something different, but actually just to the not understanding the relationships within families at a very basic level. We know from international studies, we haven't a huge amount of yet here in Ireland, but international studies where this is to be the case, you're looking at family breakdown, grandparents unable to communicate with grandchildren, and all the problems that go with that. Um, so the challenge here, I suppose, is, Alvarez would point out, that we need to understand bilingualism as additive, not just for the languages that have an economic benefit, but for all languages. And I think maybe that's where I'll leave it and, and I'll move on to uh, allow Francesca to, to take it up from there. Is that okay? perspectives that we can discuss and I think we are all aware that Dublin is a multilingual city and that these languages have come from somewhere so they are a representation of a worldview like each language in the world represents uh, one viewpoint and one way of looking at the world but for people who speak these languages there's a lot more to it there is a sense of identity there's a sense of having built a relationship through the language. And Rory spoke about migrant languages. And in a way, um, recently I was asked, is it, is it okay if I call you migrant woman? Um, they, they were, they were going to introduce me. And they said, well, uh, someone said, is it okay if I call you doctor? I said, yeah, doctor is okay. Uh, <laughs> not GP doctor, but, um, but is it okay if I call you migrant woman? And I never thought of myself now as a migrant woman, even though I lived in Italy until I was 22, and then I moved here uh, only last year. And um, so um, these migrant languages may have originated elsewhere. So, of course, I used to speak Italian when I was a child, I moved here, and I brought my language with me. And when I brought my language with me, I brought my history, I brought all my past and my relationships that I built through that language. And I value that, and I always did. And maybe more, the older I get, the more I value um, my knowledge of my language and also my ability to communicate to people with this language. Um, but really, there is a point where these migrant languages become Dublin's languages. So they, they have moved from somewhere, but they belong here now. And that is very much the case of children who grew up in Dublin, uh, in many schools, like the school that Rory was talking about, which I visited, and it's an amazing school. And I'll show you a picture from that school later. Um, but that language becomes part of the uh, repertoire of these children who are Irish children. So they grow up here, they go to school here, as everybody else, but they have an extra gift, which is the language of their heritage. It's a language that their parents have passed on to them. So it's what we call in research a heritage language. So a heritage language is the language that parents transmit onto their children, or usually parents, pass on to their children in a context where the language is not spoken outside the home. Um, why this is important is that we need to realise that these languages belong here and that bilingual children are, as Rory was saying, they're the norm. They speak two languages that are almost, you know, they're belonging to who we are as a society now. So as a society, we need to embrace this multilingualism. Multilingualism and bilingualism individuals is something quite normal. It's part of the experience of more and more children who are growing up here, going to preschools before they go to school even. You know, there are preschools that are extremely multicultural and multilingual, and we need to acknowledge that. Um, another thing that I wanted to mention in relation to this, I've briefly mentioned the issue of identity. 
Um, and when we think of children, uh, they are obviously very much influenced by whoever is around them. So it could be their family, it could be their friends, it could be their uh, community. And I've worked a lot with parents who are raised, who are raising bilingual, trilingual, plurilingual children, and they have concerns. So raising a bilingual child in Dublin is not the most straightforward, plain sailing. Uh, you may have heard the children are like sponges kind of thing. Yes, children learn everything very fast, but language does take time to acquire and it takes a lot of input and exposure and opportunities to use the language. So um, uh, parents sometimes are scared themselves, even though they may say, well, Italian is my language, I really care about it, but it's a lot of work to pass it on to my children. And uh, the same goes for Irish and for any language. Um, but also sometimes parents come with a negative attitude towards their first language and a very positive attitude towards English. So they might believe that English is the more powerful language, is also the more useful language. And for a lot of smaller language groups, like for example Dutch speakers or Swedish speakers in Dublin, they find that the community is so small that it and the, 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 their families might have very good proficiency in English, that it becomes really, really difficult to keep up this language. Um, so, in a way, uh, we think that parents are the ones responsible for uh, developing bilingualism and multilingualism in children, but in reality, there's a lot more to it. There's an entire society, uh, and that includes our neighbours, I'm thinking of our neighbours, and uh, the school community, the uh, friends, and the attitudes are something that we pick up very quickly, okay? When my child went to school for the first time, junior infants, the first thing, I was speaking Italian to her, and the teacher said, oh, what language do you speak? And she said Italian. Oh, I was in Italy only last week. And she thought, wow, this is amazing. You know, she was extremely enthusiastic about the fact that he shared a similar experience to hers. She was also just back from Italy. He spoke a couple of words in Italian, and she was extremely proud of this. And that's something that links them, you know, it creates a relationship between them. And that doesn't apply to every language. So there are some more prestigious languages, there are some languages that you might have heard of before, you might relate to, there's other languages that you've never heard before. So even the teacher has a role, the neighbour has a role, the friend has a role in saying, Every bilingual is amazing. Every language you speak, it doesn't matter how famous it is, it doesn't matter how people sometimes go easy, difficult, there's no difficult language for children when it's their parents' language. But society is responsible for um, making parents aware that they are doing um, a service to the child by raising them bilingually and by exposing them to more than one language. Um, parents, as I said, come with their own attitudes and others play another very important role and it's not only society but it's also the people who care for children at the very early stages and these might be GPs, uh, early childhood educators, public health nurses and these, and you know, uh, educators and teachers, these are adults that parents trust very much. So if they're telling you stop speaking your mother tongue to your child, parents will follow that advice and that is still happening because I hear reports regularly of parents being told not to speak their native language to their children or to keep it in the home. So yes, it's okay, it's your family language, but try and practice a few words of English every day. But that's not really, and I'm sure you're all here in tune with what I'm saying, but um, that's not a multilingual view, that's a monolingual view of how we should raise children. You know, you should be doing really well in English and then if you can cope with the other language, fine, but English is the priority. And that is a misconception because bilingual children and multilingual children, they, they can cope with as many languages, they can learn them, and they don't know them all equally well at every stage of their life. And from the point of view of ourselves as researchers, but also as um, you know, members of the community, we need to know that being bilingual or multilingual doesn't mean that you're perfect in each of your languages. And once we get away with, you know, once we understand that perfection is not what we're aiming for, um, I think it relaxes everybody. Um, the other thing that I, um, well, moving from the home and the, the advice given by uh, professionals, um, let me see, okay, I, I think teachers also have a very important role. And I mentioned one example 
um, but I've worked in, well, the school that Rory mentions, uh, I've visited 11 of those classes and, uh, and also in another inner city school. And the type of, of activities that I did with the children included talking about language. And everybody enjoys talking about language one way or another. Not only uh, children who have heritage languages, but every child has some language knowledge of English, of Irish, of uh, sometimes children mention languages they learn from books, like made-up languages. Uh, so languages are like codes and you can play with them. But what all these activities um, were very much geared towards understanding that we're living in a multilingual world. So I asked the children to bring in objects from the home that had other languages on them. Very, very easy. If you look at the packaging for the freezer bags, that has translation and it tells you uh, do not put in the oven because it will melt and it tells you in at least 15 different languages it's, if it's from little or somewhere like that um, but also children had books and they had a lot of objects like their crayons they had instructions in different languages uh, and what it, this did was definitely not teaching them new words um, they, we did a bit of that in class but it was teaching them that different languages are everywhere and we need to be open to them. We listened to the radio and uh, I found it interesting what Rory was saying about the languages that we hear on the bus. Um, when I put on either the radio or recordings of cartoons in Swahili sometimes, in Italian, in Portuguese, in Hindi, um, Children may have known the languages, and they were like, oh, that's me, that's me. Anna, how do you know that's your, that, that language? Because I know. And, but why, how do you know? I just know, the children would say. And that was their parents' language. And for the very young children, they couldn't figure out why they knew. I just know. Um, but for, in a lot of classes, when we were listening to Russian, and there was no Russian speaker in the class, and I would say, okay, let's guess. And most children would guess Polish. And when it was Italian, and I'd say, okay, guess this one, in the same class, they would guess another Romance language that sounds like Italian or Spanish. How do they know this? They know this from the bus. They, they, their parents haven't taught them that Italian sounds like that, and same as Spanish. These were five-year-olds, four-year-olds. They've heard these languages, and they are tuned into their differences. And maybe they have been on holidays somewhere. But this kind of knowledge that we have of linguistic diversity comes from our experience. Um, and one picture that I wanted to show you was an activity we did. Right, there you go. With some of... Um, can you see that? Yeah. And so this was one of the activities involved um, drawing the multilingual city. So this is Dublin 1 uh, to them. Uh, there were pictures that we brought of the immediate surroundings of the school. <clears throat> some ch they chose to use them, some didn't. Um, it's not... Let me see how well you can see a bit better. And so you see shops. All the shops are labelled with a name that the students chose in whatever language they wanted. A lot of just shops seem to be... Um, what's that horrible place called? Anyway, I can't say I'm on video, um, but children are into this stationary thing that is very smelly. Um, so a lot of shops were, yes, my um, Yeah, smelly, stationary. Uh, but they had cinema, Moldova, which is probably the shop where they buy food. And they had a few, there was a few mention of um, Moldovan uh, here and there, gelato. And so you can see... <coughs> This is the work of only three students in the space of an hour, or a bit more. And there's a lot of hashtags as well, and that's how we communicate now. And there's words like beautiful, Brazil, have a great, have a great day, and then tenho un ottimo dia. And they were able to express themselves in the languages that they wanted to use. So they chose to use English because it was an option. They chose to use Portuguese. They chose to use, um, I think there's a bit more, there's Irish there, there's hashtag Irish. And, um, but also, there's a few words here and there of, um, in Irish as well. So these three pupils, between them, have six languages, uh, five or six languages. And they can use them in a creative way. 
And that's what we're looking for. We're looking to see bilingualism, multilingualism as a way to express creativity, to express a sense of identity that is not necessarily a migrant identity. It's the new Irish multilingual identity. And we can work on this with teachers, with parents, with our local community to strengthen this idea that multilingualism is not a deficit. It's actually something that is going to enrich. And it is already enriching our society. We just need to foster it and use it as a resource. So, that's me. three languages that I'm very familiar with, Ekrola, Dave, and Good Evening. Uh, thank you very much for having me here today. I have to say it's an honour to be here to discuss Dublin languages. Thank you very much, Tom, for inviting me. So, as um, Francesca and Lauren were talking about the multilingualism in Dublin, we can't talk about Dublin languages without discussing the multiculturalism of the city and how that evolved. So Dublin has changed tremendously as a city over the last 20 years. The peak of inward migration into Ireland in general was the late 90s when me and my parents came. There's different languages heard throughout the city centre. I love hearing my own mother's tongue throughout the city centre in Yoruba. It's just, it makes me feel very at home and you know I kind of can't think, oh I know what you're saying. <laughs> And yeah, different languages are usually heard throughout the city centre. It's just beautiful to see the multiculturalism of Ireland today. In April 2016, there were 535,475 non-Irish nationals living in Ireland. Ten nationalities accounted for 70% of the total figure from the Central Statistics Office. So I'm going to just talk a bit about my background, how I got into the Irish language. So I went to primary school in Gwelskullis-Sanog. I went to Gwelskullis-Sanog because we were living, me and my parents were living down the road from, uh, from the school in Ranla. And my dad just kind of thought it would be like a great adventure to just put me in an all-Irish school, to just see how it goes, you know. But I think it was kind of a gamble in a way because, you know, that was the year 2000 and that was the peak of inward migration. So, you know, it was kind of risk in the sense that like it might have been, seemed a bit strange for someone from an immigrant background to go to an all-Irish school, but that wasn't the case at all. Well, uh, Skullisanog really took me in and took other people of different backgrounds in. It was a very multicultural school and it still is to this day. Um, we would always celebrate different cultures. My class would usually celebrate Nigeria because there was another Nigerian girl in my class at the time as well. So yeah, it was a great school. And then I went on to Clash de Isogon and that's really where my passion for the Irish language kicked in. Uh, like I say always, um, Filarish by Shauna Reardon was the poem that really got me inspired. And I studied that in fifth and sixth year for my leaving search and that poem just really spoke to me and I'll be talking about that later on. And now I'm currently a volunteer radio presenter on Radio Nalifa. I've been working there for almost five years and it's really a great experience. I would love to work in the media professionally and it's just a great way to kind of get you into radio, the media, Irish, uh, Irish language media in general. So it's great fun and I'd recommend it to anyone. And Sail the Gwelga as well. Um, I'm very heavily involved in Sail the Gwelga, Irish language life. Um, with Radio Nalifa, I've been to external, external broadcasts at the Oireachtas, Fail in the Galley in Rakhine, Gweltuk Rakhine, and Pop Up Gweltuk's as well is great. Uh, that's all in Dublin and all around the world, actually. It's really just gone all around. And it's actually on tomorrow if anyone wants to go. And, also, I was doing an International Women's Day interview for RTE with a RTE broadcaster, Blondie Coffee, and we were talking about, you know, being a woman, being an Irish speaker, 
those two minority backgrounds. And it's not an official video that went out, but we were discussing the burden of being a minority. And I said that I have two burdens, that I'm black and I'm a woman. And then she mentioned, you know, being an Irish speaker is also a burden, as it is a minority language. So it's Bandovme Nagwelga. I'm a minority within a minority community speaking a minority language. <laughs> so yeah, there's a lot to it. But I have to say, you know, it is a really beautiful thing at the same time because it is unique. So my Nigerian heritage, I'm going to speak a bit about that. So there's three main indigenous languages in Nigeria, Igbo, Hausa, and Yoruba. Uh, however, English is the official language as Nigeria was colonized by the British and got independence in the year 1960. There are over 500 languages in Nigeria. My mother's tongue is Yoruba, as I was saying. And I became familiar with the language from hearing it at home from hearing my parents speak it, from hearing my siblings speak it, my sister and my brothers, and watching Nollywood films. I don't know if anyone here has watched Nollywood films, but um, I particularly love Yoruba Nollywood films, they're great. <laughs> and it's just, Yoruba as a language is very rich and expressive. You know, when people speak Yoruba, they're really like, a lot of hand gestures, like, you can't just speak it like just, you know, kind of quietly, casually, like you have to, you have to put hand gestures in it, like any Nigerian knows that. <laughs> and um, the meaning of my own full name, Alufemi Wurala Majeko Dumi, um, the meaning of names is very important in Yoruba culture and society. Most Yoruba names are unisex. And um, my first name, Alufemi, means God loves me. And then Wurala, my middle name, means precious of wealth. And then Majakodumi means don't let it hurt me. So there's a lot, that's a lot. <laughs> um, so the thing is also a lot of most Yoruba names have like spiritual and religious meaning as well. And I don't use my first name as my main name. Uh, I use my middle name, Wurala, Ola for short. And my parents felt that Alufemi was mainly like a boy's name. And so they decided to go for Wurala for me which is an ancient Yoruba name, and also a girl's name as well. But as I was saying, most Yoruba names are mostly unisex. And the language is quite uh, gender neutral, I have to say. Uh, there's no like she, he, her, him in the language. There's no gendered words for siblings, like brother, sister. There's just younger sibling, older sibling. So therefore the language might be seen as more progressive by some. However, there are, you can say gender for like older sibling and younger sibling. So for example, Enbomi Okari, that means my older brother. Aburomi Obiri, that means my younger sister. So, according to the 2011 census, there are 70,642 resident Nigerians <laughs> in Ireland. Nigerians constitute the largest African group in Ireland. Uh, one in five people, black people in the world are Nigerian and my, I also have a love for Nigerian writers and activists as well such as Shinua Shebe, Wole Shoinka, Chimamanda Ugosi Dichi, Ijoma Umbrilio. They're just such great writers and they're known internationally as well so it's really a pride for me to see them doing well and I get a lot of inspiration from them. So here I come to Filarish. Um, this is a very important poem to me, uh, as I was saying that that's what got me pa so passionate about the Irish language. Uh, I just want to say a few, read out some of the lines from the poem, so. Fog glan lindalt hair, filarisha the huidge, need the inchil is need the kyanga, a good kangleta a go rareth, we bionus kyun lederum. Then the Eastern is still Shihan, let the Gillen Fainig. I found those lines very powerful because what Charlotte Reardon was saying, and some might see this as atavistic, but I see it as a powerful poem saying, if we were in pre-colonized, pre if we go back to pre-colonized Ireland, we'd all be speaking Irish. And it was a dream, it was an Ashling, because we can't go back to that. 
but it's just the passion in the poem is what really got to me and as I was saying that's what made me kind of think of my own mother's tongue Yoruba and how even in Nigeria some people see it as more civilised to speak English. Um, I'll mention a little anecdote like my sister even uh, living in Nigeria she didn't teach her eldest daughter Yoruba at first um, so there is this belief like in Nigeria that it's more civilised to speak English but like I was even saying to my mum like why why isn't she teaching Koyasala you know Yoruba like why like they live in Nigeria like why not like I don't understand so for me I just think we need to kind of stop thinking that the culture and the language of the colonizer is somehow better you know this is essentially what Ngugi Watiaga talks about in this essay he writes how language communicates the culture of its users language is the carrier of culture language is inseparable from ourselves as a community of human beings with a specific form and character a specific history a specific relationship with the world so Ngugi Watiaga was someone I heavily studied in my undergraduate English media and cultural studies and he talks a lot about decolonizing the mind and I think that's really what Fillory Shalariardon was talking about that we should respect our minority languages and we should keep them with us because they're also important and it shocked Luguelga this week as well and so was last week um, I don't know if anyone was watching Nationwide last night but uh, as part of Shock to Luguelga I was honest and I was talking about my story with the Irish language so yeah, there's a lot of events going on for Shock to Luguelga but for Shock to Luguelga I somehow feel like you know every week should be Irish week it shouldn't just be two weeks because this is Ireland and we should be celebrating language all the time Blina Gwelga was a huge success last year as well. So, and Achtelish also by Andram Darg. Uh, that's up north, it advocates for the Irish Language Act up north. And I have a huge respect for Irish language speakers up north because it's a struggle for them to have the right to speak their language every day in their own country. So I find that very admirable. And I'll show you a logo of the Fania, which is the logo for, for uh, Dram Darek for Octolish. And also Brian Fields' translation play, uh, that talks about the importance of translation and the significant parent has in a place, which I also studied in my undergraduate as well. So that's the symbol. So lastly, I'm gonna talk about the What Does Irish List Look Like video, which I produced and directed last year. Uh, went viral last summer, I released it in July on YouTube and other platforms and why did I include the Irish language in this video documentary? I see the Irish language as part of the identity conversation I've seen it as very central in Irish life and society and culture and I see it as part of Irish identity showcasing Ireland's rich diversity and a hope for a more inclusive society we talk a lot about diversity, but I think we should aim more to be inclusive rather than diverse in the sense that we should include all kinds of people in our discussions, in our media, everywhere we can. And there's no way, one way to look Irish in today's Ireland. Um, 2019 Ireland is so diverse, as you were talking about, Francesca. And it's something to be celebrated rather than to be scared of. And I think we should also be mindful of the language we use to communicate with people who we think are different to us. That question, where are you really from? Myself and Francesca were discussing this earlier. It's, I know a lot of people feel that it's a harmless question, but for people like myself that grew up here, but do have another heritage, there's no one way to really answer that question because, you know, even for myself, you know, I was born in Lagos, Nigeria, but I came here when I was seven months old. I've been living here all my life, so, you know, I can't answer that in one way. Usually when people ask me where I'm from, I just say Dublin because this is where I grew up all my life. But, you know, if you're kind 
and respectful, then I will give you that knowledge of my history, you know, it's not something that's just so easy to answer. And a lot for a lot of people that, you know, come here to a new new country, you know, not everyone's journey is an easy journey to tell. My parents came here as asylum seekers. I might not want to share that story with everyone. So you have to be mindful about the questions you ask people. So I'm gonna show the video now. <clears throat> and I hope you enjoy. I'm Irish. I'm Irish. It's Aaron Othme. What does this Aaron Othme fashion? I'm Irish. I'm Irish. It's Aaron Othme. But you mightn't guess it the first time that you talk to me. One of the first things they'll ask me is where I'm from. And one of the second things they'll ask me is, no, where am I really from? And it, it's, I'm sure it's perfectly innocent, but I'm Irish. It's, uh, it's, it's as simple as that. I guess when someone of colour asks me where I'm from, I would say Irish and they'd be like, cool, me too, Tala. Where are you from? But when it's someone who's <laughs> it kind of, you feel like there's an undertone of something else. I get a quizzical look, a raised eyebrow, and they say, but well, you don't look Irish. And what they mean by that is, I don't look white. Saying I'm Irish is never good enough. I grew up in Dublin. I always felt like I, I was Irish, but now and again I'm reminded that I don't look it. I remember it really vividly. Um, I had a crush on a guy. Well, he told my friends that, that he wasn't interested in me because I was a chink. I mean, even at primary school, growing up, people would be like, why should you come here? And ask you weird questions like that. I've read that I have to accept the fact that I am Nigerian, and that is my history, that's my ancestry. But I'm also Irish because this is where I grew up. It's your first day of college, and you're the only like person of color there, and your tutor's like, oh, Karen, uh, Karen, sorry, uh, where, where are you from? Since we're all getting to know each other here, where, where are you from? I'm Irish. Uh, where, where, um, Everyone's looking around you and it's awkward and you're like, oh, you want to know how my like, you know, so beautifully caramel. Um, you know, in saying that, I know a lot of people who are white would probably be like, oh, well, it's a PC politics gone mad and, um, you know, you can't even ask people where they're from these days without like offending them. It's like, well, I mean, it depends on how you ask it. People almost like, um, like see me as like, oh, she's exotic, she's Asian. It used to bother me an awful lot, but I've started to understand that maybe some people might be ignorant or they're just not used to seeing people from a different cultural background who are Irish. I'm Irish, but my parents are Chinese and that's the end of that. My mom has more stories than she can even remember of People coming up to her and saying like, oh, what a beautiful baby you have. You have a heart of gold for taking one of them in, you know, I've seen on the telly, it's so sad. And she would try to like convince them that this was her actual daughter. And people just didn't seem, <laughs> people just didn't seem to believe her. A lot of the racism that happens here seems to be from people who genuinely believe that they mean well. Like, these wee grannies who would talk to me at the bus stop and they would compliment me and they were so kind about how good my English was. Born and adopted from Romania, I'm Irish. I used to work in a restaurant and people would ask me every time I served them where I was from. When I say I'm from down the road, from Dublin or from Ireland, the disbelief in people's eyes kills me. And it got to the point where if they said a country, say Italy, I would actually just agree with them just to make them stop talking. I guess we call them microaggressions. It's like a mosquito bite, you know? You get one, it's not a big deal. It's annoying, but you move on. But when you're constantly just swarmed by them and they're buzzing in your ears and they're pinching you all over, it's just, it's maddening. And at that point, where are you from from starts sounding like where are you supposed to be instead. What I am is an Irish woman of Nigerian heritage. This is my face, this is my skin, and it's me, I'm Irish. 
is I think right off the bat, the first thing people think when I tell them that I'm Irish is how could she possibly be Irish when she's also black? And I think the fact that we have these notions of what Irishness is meant to be is pretty, it's pretty ridiculous. It is possible to have this duality within you, you know, I am Irish, but I'm also a person, a person of colour and, you know, there are people who don't accept that, you know, that's their own problem. You look like you're from Nigeria, you live in Ireland, you sound a bit American, and you look all these like hodgepodges of identity. It's this weird thing of identity being like this melting pot. What, what's the look of a nation, what's the look of a country? I've lived in Ireland for 14 years, and I identify as Afro-Irish. I think when it comes to identity, it's so much more like what you perceive yourself to be and how you see it as opposed to other people. Being called Irish, being perceived myself as Irish, something I take with pride, is a place I want to represent. You are where you, where you call home and where you consider home, anything right? else is just, you know, loud by noise. Growing up, I grew up as an Irish person. I grew up with the Irish culture, the Irish food, the Irish music, and I studied Irish in school, but then to know people are attacking me for not being Irish as a child, I just couldn't understand that. You know, I didn't do five years of honors Irish for some cretin on Twitter to tell me <laughs> that, you know, I'm not as much a part of this country as anyone else is. You know, I've seen Cockabillish and You Made Asylum done more times than any person is supposed to do. So I'm an Irish, like, and that's it. Being Irish is not only a color of skin, it's not only a color of hair, it's not only a color of eyes. It's a culture. Uh, this is Ireland and, and I'm Irish. So I...